Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Hey friends, we're back with another installment of Thomas More's Utopia. When we left off in the last episode, I was ready to throw the entire island in the dumpster. Let's see if the next chapter of The Travelings of the Utopians can convince us to give this little island paradise another chance. This is a long one, so instead of saying a bunch of weird stuff up front, I'm just going to get right into it. Sir Thomas More's Utopia, Book 2, Continued, of the Traveling of the Utopians. If any man has a mind to visit his friends that live in some other town, or desires to travel and see the rest of the country, he obtains leave very easily from the Syphagrant and Tanabors, when there is no particular occasion for him at home. Such as travel carry with them a passport from the prince, which both certifies the license that is granted for traveling and limits the time of their return. They are furnished with a wagon and a slave, who drives the oxen and looks after them. But unless there are women in the company, the wagon is sent back at the end of the journey as a needless encumbrance. While they are on the road, they carry no provisions with them, yet they want nothing, but are everywhere treated as if they were at home. If they stay in any place longer than a night, everyone follows his proper occupation and is very well used by those of his own trade. But if any man goes out of the city to which he belongs without leave and is found rambling without a passport, he is severely treated. He is punished as a fugitive and sent home disgracefully. And if he falls again into the like fault, is condemned to slavery. If any man has a mind to travel only over the precinct of his own city, he may freely do it with his father's permission and his wife's consent. But when he comes into any of the country houses, if he expects to be entertained by them, he must labor with them and conform to their rules. And if he does this, he may freely go over the whole precinct, being thus as useful to the city to which he belongs as if he were still within it. Thus you see that there are no idle persons among them, nor pretenses of excusing from any labor. There are no taverns, no alehouses, nor stews among them, nor any other occasions of corrupting each other, of getting into corners, or forming themselves into parties. All men live in full view, so that all are obliged, both to perform their ordinary task and to employ themselves well in their spare hours and it is certain that a people thus ordered must live in great abundance of all things, and these being equally distributed among them, no man can want or be obliged to beg. In their great council at Amorot, to which there are three sent from every town once a year, they examine what towns abound in provisions and what are under any scarcity, so that the one may be furnished from the other. And this is done freely, without any sort of exchange, for according to their plenty or scarcity, they supply or are supplied from one another. 
so that indeed the whole island is, as it were, one family. When they have thus taken care of their whole country and laid up stores for two years, which they do to prevent the ill consequences of an unfavorable season, they order an exportation of the overplus, both of corn, honey, wool, flax, wood, wax, tallow, leather, and cattle, which they send out commonly in great quantities to other nations. They order a seventh part of all these goods to be freely given to the poor of the countries to which they send them, and sell the rest at moderate rates. And by this exchange, they not only bring back those few things that they need at home, for indeed they scarce need anything but iron, but likewise a great deal of gold and silver. And by their driving this trade so long, it is not to be imagined how vast a treasure they have got among them so that now they do not much care whether they sell off their merchandise for money in hand or upon trust. A great part of their treasure is now in bonds, but in all their contracts no private man stands bound, but the writing runs in the name of the town. And the towns that owe them money raise it from those private hands that owe it to them, lay it up in their public chamber, or enjoy the profit of it till the utopians call for it. And they choose rather to let the greatest part of it lie in their hands who make advantage by it, than to call for it themselves. But if they see that any of their other neighbors stand more in need of it, then they call it in and lend it to them. Whenever they are engaged in war, which is the only occasion in which their treasure can be usefully employed, they make use of it themselves. In great extremities or sudden accidents, they employ it in hiring foreign troops whom they more willingly expose to danger than their own people. They give them great pay, knowing well that this will work even on their enemies, that it will engage them either to betray their own side or at least to desert it. And that is the best means of raising mutual jealousies among them. For this end, they have an incredible treasure, but they do not keep it as a treasure, but in such manner as I am almost afraid to tell lest you think it so extravagant as to be hardly credible. This I have the more reason to apprehend, because if I had not seen it myself, I could not have been easily persuaded to have believed it upon any man's report. It is certain that all things appear incredible to us in proportion as they differ from our own customs. But one who can judge aright will not wonder to find that since their constitution differs so much from ours, their value of gold and silver should be measured by a very different standard. For since they have no use for money among themselves, but keep it as a provision against events which seldom happen, and between which there are generally long intervening intervals, they value it no farther than it deserves, that is, in proportion to its use so that it is plain they must prefer iron either to gold or silver, for men can no more live without iron than without fire or water. But nature has marked out no use for the other metals, so essential as not easily to be dispensed with. The folly of men has enhanced the value of gold and silver because of their scarcity. Whereas, on the contrary, it is their opinion that nature, as an indulgent parent, has freely given us all the best things in great abundance, such as water and earth, but has laid up and hid from us the things that are vain and useless. If these metals were laid up in any tower in the kingdom, it would raise a jealousy of the prince and senate 
and give birth to that foolish mistrust into which the people are apt to fall, a jealousy of their intending to sacrifice the interest of the public to their own private advantage. If they should work it into vessels or any sort of plate, they fear that the people might grow too fond of it, and so be unwilling to let the plate be run down if a war made it necessary to employ it in paying their soldiers. To prevent all these inconveniences, they have fallen upon an expedient, which as it agrees with their other policy, so it is very different from ours, and will scarce gain belief among us who value gold so much and lay it up so carefully. They eat and drink out of vessels of earth or glass, which make an agreeable appearance, though formed of brittle materials, while they make their chamber pots and clothes stools of gold and silver, and that not only in their public halls, but in their private houses. Of the same metals they likewise make chains and fetters for their slaves, to some of which, as a badge of infamy, they hang an earring of gold, and make others wear a chain or a coronet of the same metal. And thus they take care by all possible means to render gold and silver of no esteem. And from hence it is that while other nations part with their gold and silver as unwillingly as if one tore out their bowels, those of Utopia would look on their giving in all they possess of those metals when there were any use for them, but as the parting with a trifle, or as we would esteem the loss of a penny. They find pearls on their coast, and diamonds and carbuncles on their rocks. They do not look after them, but if they find them by chance, they polish them, and with them they adorn their children, who are delighted with them and glory in them during their childhood. But when they grow to years, and see that none but children use such baubles, they of their own accord, without being bid by their parents, lay them aside, and would be as much ashamed to use them afterwards, as children among us, when they come to years, are of their puppets and other toys. I never saw a clearer instance of the opposite impressions that different customs make on people than I observed in the ambassadors of the Animolians, who came to Amarat when I was there. As they came to treat of affairs of great consequence, the deputies from several towns met together to wait for their coming. The ambassadors of the nations that lie near Utopia, knowing their customs, and that fine clothes are in no esteem among them, that silk is despised, and gold is a badge of infamy, used to come very modestly clothed. But the Animolians lying more remote, and having had little commerce with them, understanding that they were coarsely clothed and all in the same manner, took it for granted that they had none of those fine things among them, of which they made no use. And they, being a vainglorious rather than a wise people, resolved to set themselves out with so much pomp that they should look like gods, and strike the eyes of the poor Utopians with their splendor. Thus, three ambassadors made their entry with a hundred attendants, all clad in garments of different colors and the greater part in silk. The ambassadors themselves, who were of the nobility of their country, were in cloth of gold and adorned with massy chains, earrings, and rings of gold. Their caps were covered with bracelets set full of pearls and other gems, in a word, they were set out with all those things that, among the Utopians, were either the badges of slavery, the marks of infamy, or the playthings of children. It was not unpleasant to see, on the one side, how they looked big when they compared their rich habits with the plain clothes of the Utopians, who were come out in great numbers to see them make their entry, and, on the other, to observe how much they were mistaken in the impression which they hoped this pomp would have made on them. 
It appeared so ridiculous a show to all that had never stirred out of their country and had not seen the customs of other nations, that though they paid some reverence to those that were the most meanly clad, as if they had been the ambassadors, yet when they saw the ambassadors themselves, so full of gold and chains, they looked upon them as slaves and forbore to treat them with reverence. You might have seen the children who were grown big enough to despise their playthings and who had thrown away their jewels call to their mothers, push them gently, and cry out, See that great fool that wears pearls and gems as if he were yet a child, while their mothers very innocently replied, Hold your peace. This, I believe, is one of the ambassador's fools. Others censured the fashion of their chains and observed that they were of no use, for they were too slight to bind their slaves who could easily break them, and besides hung so loose about them that they thought it easy to throw them away and so get from them. But after the ambassadors had stayed a day among them and saw so vast a quantity of gold in their houses, which was as much despised by them as it was esteemed in other nations, and beheld more gold and silver in the chains and fetters of one slave than all their ornaments amounted to, their plumes fell, and they were ashamed of all that glory for which they had formerly valued themselves, and accordingly laid it aside. A resolution that they immediately took, when on their engaging in some free discourse with the Utopians, they discovered their sense of such things and their other customs. The Utopians wonder how any man should be so much taken with the glaring, doubtful luster of a jewel or a stone that can look up to a star or to the sun himself, or how any should value himself because his cloth is made of a finer thread. For how fine soever that thread may be, it was once no better than the fleece of a sheep, and that sheep was a sheep still for all its wearing it. They wonder much to hear that gold, which in itself is so useless a thing, should be everywhere so much esteemed, that even men for whom it was made, and by whom it has its value, should yet be thought of less value than this metal. That a man of lead, who has no more sense than a log of wood, and is as bad as he is foolish, should have many wise and good men to serve him, only because he has a great heap of that metal, and that, if it should happen that by some accident or trick of law, which sometimes produces as great changes as chance itself, all this wealth should pass from the master to the meanest varlet of his whole family, he himself would very soon become one of his servants, as if he were a thing that belonged to his wealth, and so were bound to follow its fortune. But they much more admire and detest the folly of those who, when they see a rich man, though they neither owe him anything nor are in any sort dependent on his bounty, yet merely because he is rich, give him little less than divine honors, even though they know him to be so covetous and base-minded that notwithstanding all his wealth, he will not part with one farthing of it to them as long as he lives. These and such like notions has that people imbibed partly from their education, being bred in a country whose customs and laws are opposite to all such foolish maxims, and partly from their learning and studies, for though there are but few in any town that are so wholly excused from labor as to give themselves entirely up to their studies, these being only such persons as discover from their childhood an extraordinary capacity and disposition for letters. Yet their children and a great part of the nation, both men and women, are taught to spend those hours in which they are not obliged to work in reading, 
and this they do through the whole progress of life. They have all their learning in their own tongue, which is both a copious and pleasant language, and in which a man can fully express his mind. It runs over a great tract of many countries, but it is not equally pure in all places. They had never so much as heard of the names of any of those philosophers that are so famous in these parts of the world before we went among them. And yet they had made the same discoveries as the Greeks, both in music, logic, arithmetic, and geometry. But as they are almost in everything equal to the ancient philosophers, so they far exceed our modern logicians, for they have never yet fallen upon the barbarous niceties that our youth are forced to learn in those trifling logical schools that are among us. They are so far from minding chimeras and fantastical images made in the mind that none of them could comprehend what we meant when we talked to them of a man in the abstract as common to all men in particular, so that though we spoke of him as a thing that we could point out with our fingers, yet none of them could perceive him, and yet distinct from everyone as if he were some monstrous colossus or giant. Yet for all this ignorance of these empty notions, they knew astronomy and were perfectly acquainted with the motions of the heavenly bodies, and have many instruments, well contrived and divided, by which they very accurately compute the course and positions of the sun, moon, and stars. But for the cheat of divining by the stars by their oppositions or conjunctions, it has not so much as entered into their thoughts. They have a particular sagacity founded upon much observation in judging of the weather, by which they know when they may look for rain, wind, or other alterations in the air. But as to the philosophy of these things, the causes of the saltness of the sea, of its ebbing and flowing, and of the original and nature both of the heavens and the earth. They dispute of them, partly as our ancient philosophers have done, and partly upon some new hypothesis, in which, as they differ from them, so they do not in all things agree among themselves. As to moral philosophy, they have the same disputes among them as we have here. They examine what are properly good both for the body and the mind, and whether any outward thing can be called truly good, or if that term belong only to the endowments of the soul. They inquire likewise into the nature of virtue and pleasure. But their chief dispute is concerning the happiness of a man and wherein it consists, whether in some one thing or in a great many. They seem, indeed, more inclinable to that opinion that places, if not the whole, yet the chief part of a man's happiness and pleasure. And what may seem more strange, they make use of arguments even from religion, notwithstanding its severity and roughness, for the support of that opinion so indulgent to pleasure. For they never dispute concerning happiness without fetching some arguments from the principles of religion, as well as from natural reason, since without the former, they reckon that all our inquiries after happiness must be but conjectural and defective. These are their religious principles, that the soul of man is immortal, and that God of his goodness has designed that it should be happy, and that he has therefore appointed rewards for good and virtuous actions and punishments for vice to be distributed after this life. Though these principles of religion are conveyed down among them by tradition, they think that even reason itself determines a man to believe and acknowledge them, and freely confess that if these were taken away, 
no man would be so insensible as not to seek after pleasure by all possible means, lawful or unlawful, using only this caution that a lesser pleasure might not stand in the way of a greater, and that no pleasure ought to be pursued that should draw a great deal of pain after it. For they think it the maddest thing in the world to pursue virtue, that is a sour and difficult thing, and not only to renounce the pleasures of life, but willingly to undergo much pain and trouble if a man has no prospect of a reward. And what reward can there be for one that has passed his whole life not only without pleasure, but in pain, if there is nothing to be expected after death? Yet they do not place happiness in all sorts of pleasures, but only in those that in themselves are good and honest. There is a party among them who place happiness in bare virtue. Others think that our natures are conducted by virtue to happiness, as that which is the chief good of man. They define virtue thus, that it is a living according to nature, and think that we are made by God for that end. They believe that a man then follows the dictates of nature when he pursues or avoids things according to the direction of reason. They say that the first dictate of reason is the kindling in us a love and reverence for the divine majesty to whom we owe both all that we have and all that we can ever hope for. In the next place, reason directs us to keep our minds as free from passion and as cheerful as we can and that we should consider ourselves as bound by the ties of good nature and humanity to use our utmost endeavors to help forward the happiness of all other persons. For there never was any man such a morose and severe pursuer of virtue, such an enemy to pleasure, that though he set hard rules for men to undergo much pain, many watchings, and other rigors, yet did not at the same time advise them to do all they could in order to relieve and ease the miserable and who did not represent gentleness and good nature as amiable dispositions. And from thence they infer that if a man ought to advance the welfare and comfort of the rest of mankind, there being no virtue more proper and peculiar to our nature, than to ease the misery of others, to free from trouble and anxiety, in furnishing them with the comforts of life in which pleasure consists, nature much more vigorously leads them to do all this for himself. A life of pleasure is either a real evil, and in that case we ought not to assist others in their pursuit of it, but on the contrary, to keep them from it all we can, as from that which is most hurtful and deadly, or if it is a good thing, so that we not only may, but ought to help others to it, why then ought not a man to begin with himself, since no man can be more bound to look after the good of another than after his own, for nature cannot direct us to be good and kind to others, and yet at the same time to be unmerciful and cruel to ourselves. Thus, as they define virtue to be living according to nature, so they imagine that nature prompts all people on to seek after pleasure, as the end of all they do. They also observe that in order to our supporting the pleasures of life, nature inclines us to enter into society. For there is no man so much raised above the rest of mankind as to be the only favorite of nature, who, on the contrary, seems to have placed on a level all those that belong to the same species. 
Upon this, they infer that no man ought to seek his own conveniences so eagerly as to prejudice others, and therefore they think that not only all agreements between private persons ought to be observed, but likewise that all those laws ought to be kept which either a good prince has published in due form, or to which a people that is neither oppressed with tyranny nor circumvented by fraud has consented for distributing those conveniences of life which afford us all our pleasures. They think it is an evidence of true wisdom for a man to pursue his own advantages as far as the law allows it. They account it piety to prefer the public good to one's private concerns, but they think it unjust for a man to seek pleasure by snatching another man's pleasures from him. And on the contrary, they think it a sign of a gentle and good soul for a man to dispense with his own advantage for the good of others, and that by this means a good man finds as much pleasure one way as he parts with another. For as he may expect the like from others when he may come to need it, so if that should fail him, yet the sense of a good action and the reflections that he makes on the love and gratitude of those whom he has so obliged gives the mind more pleasure than the body could have found in that from which it had restrained itself. They are also persuaded that God will make up the loss of those small pleasures with a vast and endless joy of which religion easily convinces a good soul. Thus, upon an inquiry into the whole matter, they reckon that all our actions and even all our virtues terminate in pleasure, as in our chief end and greatest happiness. And they call every motion or state, either of body or mind, in which nature teaches us to delight a pleasure. Thus, they cautiously limit pleasure only to those appetites to which nature leads us. For they say that nature leads us only to those delights in which reason, as well as sense, carries us, and by which we neither injure any other person nor lose the possession of greater pleasures, and of such as draw no troubles after them. But they look upon those delights which men by a foolish, though common, mistake call pleasure, as if they could change as easily the nature of things as the use of words, as things that greatly obstruct their real happiness, instead of advancing it, because they so entirely possess the minds of those that are once captivated by them with a false notion of pleasure, that there is no room left for pleasures of a truer or purer kind. There are many things that in themselves have nothing that is truly delightful. On the contrary, they have a good deal of bitterness in them, and yet from our perverse appetites after forbidden objects are not only ranked among the pleasures, but are made even the greatest designs of life. Among those who pursue these sophisticated pleasures, they reckon such as I mentioned before, who think themselves really the better for having fine clothes in which they think they are doubly mistaken, both in the opinion that they have of their clothes and in that they have of themselves. For if you consider the use of clothes, why should a fine thread be thought better than a coarse one? And yet these men, as if they had some real advantages beyond others, and did not owe them wholly to their mistakes, look big, seem to fancy themselves to be more valuable, and imagine that a respect is due to them for the sake of a rich garment, to which they would not have pretended if they had been more meanly clothed, and even resent it as an affront if that respect is not paid them. It is also a great folly to be taken with outward marks of respect, which signify nothing. For what true or real pleasure can one man find in another's standing bare or making legs to him? 
Will the bending another man's knees give ease to yours? And will the heads being bare cure the madness of yours? And yet it is wonderful to see how this false notion of pleasure bewitches many who delight themselves with the fancy of their nobility and are pleased with this conceit that they are descended from ancestors who have been held for some successions rich and who have had great possessions. For this is all that makes nobility at present. Yet they do not think themselves a whit the less noble, though their immediate parents have left none of this wealth to them, or though they themselves have squandered it away. The utopians have no better opinion of those who are much taken with gems and precious stones, and who account it a degree of happiness next to a divine one, if they can purchase one that is very extraordinary, especially if it be of that sort of stones that is then in greatest request. For the same sort is not at all times universally of the same value, nor will men buy it unless it be dismounted and taken out of the gold. The jeweler is then made to give good security and required solemnly to swear that the stone is true, that by such an exact caution a false one might not be bought instead of a true, though if you were to examine it, your eye could find no difference between the counterfeit and that which is true so that they are all one to you as much as if you were blind? Or can it be thought that they who heap up a useless mass of wealth, not for any use that it is to bring them, but merely to please themselves with the contemplation of it, enjoy any true pleasure in it? The delight they find is only a false shadow of joy. Those are no better whose error is somewhat different from the former and who hide it out of their fear of losing it. For what other name can fit the hiding it in the earth, or rather the restoring it to it again, it being thus cut off from being useful either to its owner or to the rest of mankind? And yet the owner, having hit it carefully, is glad, because he thinks he is now sure of it. If it should be stole, the owner, though he might live perhaps ten years after the theft, of which he knew nothing, would find no difference between his having or losing it. For both ways, it was equally useless to him. Among those foolish pursuers of pleasure, they reckon all that delight in hunting, in fowling, of gaming, of whose madness they have only heard, for they have no such things among them. But they have asked us, what sort of pleasure is it that men can find in throwing the dice? If there were any pleasure in it, they think the doing of it so often should give one a surfeit of it. And what pleasure can one find in hearing the barking and howling of dogs, which seem rather odious than pleasant sounds? Nor can they comprehend the pleasure of seeing dogs run after a hare, more than of seeing one dog run after another. For if the seeing them run is that which gives the pleasure, you have the same entertainment to the eye on both these occasions, since that is the same in both cases. But if the pleasure lies in seeing the hare killed and torn by the dogs, this ought rather to stir pity that a weak, harmless, and fearful hare should be devoured by strong, fierce, and cruel dogs. Therefore, all this business of hunting is, among the utopians, turned over to their butchers, and those, as has already been said, are all slaves, and they look on hunting as one of the basest parts of a butcher's work, for they account it both more profitable and more decent to kill those beasts that are more necessary and useful to mankind, whereas the killing and tearing of so small and miserable an animal can only attract the huntsman with a false show of pleasure, from which he can reap but small advantage. 
They look on the desire of the bloodshed, even of beasts, as a mark of a mind that is already corrupted with cruelty, or that at least by the frequent returns of so brutal a pleasure must degenerate into it. Thus, though the rabble of mankind look upon these and on innumerable other things of the same nature as pleasures, the utopians, on the contrary, observing that there is nothing in them truly pleasant, conclude that they are not to be reckoned among pleasures. For though these things may create some tickling in the senses, which seems to be a true notion of pleasure, yet they imagine that this does not arise from the thing itself, but from a depraved custom, which may so vitiate a man's taste that bitter things may pass for sweet, as women with child think pitch or tallow taste sweeter than honey. But as a man's sense when corrupted, either by a disease or some ill habit, does not change the nature of other things, so neither can it change the nature of pleasure. They reckon up several sorts of pleasures, which they call true ones. Some belong to the body and others to the mind. The pleasures of the mind lie in knowledge and in that delight which the contemplation of truth carries with it, to which they add the joyful reflections on a well-spent life and the assured hopes of a future happiness. They divide the pleasures of the body into two sorts. The one is that which gives our senses some real delight and is performed either by recruiting nature and supplying those parts which feed the internal heat of life by eating and drinking. Or when nature is eased of any surcharge that oppresses it, when we are relieved from sudden pain or that which arises from satisfying the appetite which nature has wisely given to lead us to the propagation of the species. There is another kind of pleasure that arises neither from our receiving what the body requires nor its being relieved when overcharged, and yet by a secret, unseen virtue affects the senses, raises the passions, and strikes the mind with generous impressions. This is the pleasure that arises from music. Another kind of bodily pleasure is that which results from an undisturbed and vigorous constitution of body when life and active spirits seem to actuate every part. This lively health, when entirely free from all mixture of pain, of itself gives an inward pleasure independent of all external objects of delight. And though this pleasure does not so powerfully affect us, nor act so strongly on the senses as some of the others, yet it may be esteemed as the greatest of all pleasures and almost all the utopians reckon it the foundation and basis of all the other joys in life, since this alone makes the state of life easy and desirable. And when this is wanting, a man is really capable of no other pleasure. They look upon freedom from pain if it does not rise from perfect health to be a state of stupidity rather than of pleasure. This subject has been very narrowly canvassed among them and it has been debated whether a firm and entire health could be called a pleasure or not. Some have thought that there was no pleasure but what was excited by some sensible motion in the body, but this opinion has been long ago excluded from among them, so that now they almost universally agree that health is the greatest of all bodily pleasures, and that as there is a pain in sickness, which is as opposite in its nature to pleasure as sickness itself is to health, so they hold that health is accompanied with pleasure, and if any should say that sickness is not really pain, but that it only carries pain along with it, they look upon that as a fetch of subtlety that does not much alter the matter.
It is all one, in their opinion, whether it is to be said that health is in itself a pleasure or that it begets a pleasure, as fire gives heat. So it be granted that all those whose health is entire have a true pleasure in the enjoyment of it, and they reason thus, What is the pleasure of eating but that a man's health which has been weakened does with the assistance of food drive away hunger, and so recruiting itself recovers its former vigor? And being thus refreshed, it finds a pleasure in that conflict. And if the conflict is pleasure, the victory must yet breed a greater pleasure, except we fancy that it becomes stupid as soon as it has obtained that which it pursued, and so neither knows nor rejoices in its own welfare. If it is said that health cannot be felt, they absolutely deny it. For what man is in health that does not perceive it when he is awake? Is there any man that is so dull and stupid as not to acknowledge that he feels a delight in health? And what is delight but another name for pleasure? But of all the pleasures, they esteem those to be most valuable that lie in the mind, the chief of which arises out of true virtue and the witness of a good conscience. They account health the chief pleasure that belongs to the body, for they think that the pleasure of eating and drinking and all the other delights of sense are only so far desirable as they give or maintain health. But they are not pleasant in themselves otherwise than they resist those impressions that our natural infirmities are still making upon us. For as a wise man desires rather to avoid diseases than to take physic, and to be freed from pain rather than to find ease by remedies, so it is more desirable not to need this sort of pleasure than to be obliged to indulge it. If any man imagines that there is a real happiness in these enjoyments, he must then confess that he would be the happiest of all men if he were to lead his life in perpetual hunger, thirst, and itching, and by consequence in perpetual eating, drinking, and scratching himself, which any one may easily see would be not only a base, but a miserable state of a life. These are indeed the lowest of pleasures and the least pure, for we can never relish them but when they are mixed with the contrary pains. The pain of hunger must give us the pleasure of eating, and here the pain outbalances the pleasure. And as the pain is more vehement, so it lasts much longer. For as it begins before the pleasure, so it does not cease but with the pleasure that extinguishes it, and both expire together. They think, therefore, none of those pleasures are to be valued any further than as they are necessary. Yet they rejoice in them, and with due gratitude acknowledge the tenderness of the great author of nature, who has planted in us appetites by which those things that are necessary for our preservation are likewise made pleasant to us. For how miserable a thing would life be if those daily diseases of hunger and thirst were to be carried off by such bitter drugs as we must use for those diseases that return seldomer upon us. And thus, these pleasant as well as proper gifts of nature maintain the strength and the sprightliness of our bodies. They also entertain themselves with the other delights let in at their eyes, their ears, and their nostrils, as the pleasant relishes and seasonings of life which nature seems to have marked out peculiarly for man, since no other sort of animal contemplates the figure and beauty of the universe, nor is delighted with smells any farther than as they distinguish meats by them. Not do they apprehend the concords or discords of sound, 
yet in all pleasures whatsoever they take care that a lesser joy does not hinder a greater, and that pleasure may never breed pain, which they think always follows dishonest pleasures. But they think it madness for a man to wear out the beauty of his face or the force of his natural strength, to corrupt the sprightliness of his body by sloth and laziness, or to waste it by fasting, that it is madness to weaken the strength of his constitution and reject the other delights of life, unless by renouncing his own satisfaction he can either serve the public or promote the happiness of others, for which he expects a greater recompense from God, so that they look on such a course of life as the mark of a mind that is both cruel to itself and ungrateful to the author of nature, as if we would not be beholden to him for his favors, and therefore rejects all his blessings as one who should afflict himself for the empty shadow of virtue, or for no better end than to render himself capable of bearing those misfortunes which possibly will never happen. This is their notion of virtue and of pleasure. They think that no man's reason can carry him to a truer idea of them, unless some discovery from heaven should inspire him with sublimer notions. I have not now the leisure to examine whether they think right or wrong in this matter, nor do I judge it necessary, for I have only undertaken to give you an account of their constitution, but not to defend all their principles. I am sure that whatsoever may be said of their notions, there is not in the whole world either a better people or a happier government. Their bodies are vigorous and lively, and though they are but of a middle stature, they have neither the fruitfulest soil nor the purest air in the world, yet they fortify themselves so well by their temperate course of life against the unhealthiness of their air, and by their industry they so cultivate their soil that there is nowhere to be seen a greater increase both of corn and cattle, nor are there anywhere healthier men and freer from diseases. For one may there see reduced to practice not only all the art that the husbandman employs in manuring and improving an ill soil, but whole woods plucked up by the roots, and in other places new ones planted, where there were none before. Their principal motive for this is the convenience of carriage, that their timber may be either near their towns or growing on the banks of the sea or of some rivers, so as to be floated to them. For it is a harder work to carry wood at any distance over land than corn. The people are industrious, apt to learn, as well as cheerful and pleasant, and none can endure more labor when it is necessary, but except in that case they love their ease. They are unwearied pursuers of knowledge. For when we had given them some hints of the learning and discipline of the Greeks, concerning whom we only instructed them, for we know that there was nothing among the Romans except their historians and their poets that they would value much, it was strange to see how eagerly they were set on learning that language. We began to read a little of it to them, rather in compliance with their importunity than out of any hopes of their reaping from it any great advantage. But after a very short trial, we found that they made such progress that we saw our labor was like to be more successful than we could have expected. They learned to write their characters and to pronounce their language so exactly, had so quick an apprehension, they remembered it so faithfully, and became so ready and correct in the use of it, that it would have looked like a miracle if the greater part of those whom we taught had not been men both of extraordinary capacity and of a fit age for instruction. 
They were, for the greatest part, chosen from among their learned men by their chief counsel, though some studied it of their own accord. In three years' time, they became masters of the whole language, so that they read the best of the Greek authors very exactly. I am indeed apt to think that they learned that language the more easily from its having some relation to their own. I believe that they were a colony of the Greeks, for though their language comes nearer the Persian, yet they retain many names both for their towns and magistrates that are of Greek derivation. I happened to carry a great many books with me instead of merchandise when I sailed my fourth voyage, for I was so far from thinking of soon coming back that I rather thought never to have returned at all, and I gave them all my books, among which were many of Plato's and some of Aristotle's works. I had also Theophrastus on plants, which to my great regret was imperfect, for having laid it carelessly by while we were at sea, a monkey had seized upon it and in many places torn out the leaves. They have no books of grammar but Lascaris, for I did not carry Theodorus with me, nor have they any dictionaries but Hesychius and Dioscorides. They esteem Plutarch highly and were much taken with Lucian's wit and with his pleasant way of writing. As for the poets, they have Aristophanes, Homer, Euripides, and Sophocles of Aldous's edition, and the historians Thucydides, Herodotus, and Herodian. One of my companions, Thricius Apinitus, happened to carry with him some of Hippocrates's works and Galen's Microtechna, which they hold in great estimation. For though there is no nation in the world that needs physic so little as they do, yet there is not any that honors it so much. They reckon the knowledge of it one of the pleasantest and most profitable parts of philosophy, by which, as they search into the secrets of nature, so they not only find this study highly agreeable, but think that such inquiries are very acceptable to the author of nature, and imagine that as he, like the inventors of curious engines amongst mankind, has exposed this great machine of the universe to the view of the only creatures capable of contemplating it. So an exact and curious observer who admires his workmanship is much more acceptable to him than one of the herd, who, like a beast incapable of reason, looks on this glorious scene with the eyes of a dull and unconcerned spectator. The minds of the utopians, when fenced with a love for learning, are very ingenious in discovering all such arts as are necessary to carry it to perfection. Two things they owe to us, the manufacture of paper and the art of printing. Yet they are not so entirely indebted to us for these discoveries, but that a great part of the invention was their own. We showed them some books printed by Aldous. We explained to them the way of making paper and the mystery of printing. But as we had never practiced these arts, we described them in a crude and superficial manner. They seized the hints we gave them, and though at first they could not arrive at perfection, yet by making many essays, they at last found out and corrected all their errors and conquered every difficulty. Before this, they only wrote on parchment, on reeds, or on the barks of trees. But now they have established the manufacturers of paper and set up printing presses, so that if they had but a good number of Greek authors, they would be quickly supplied with many copies of them. At present, though they have no more than those I have mentioned, yet by several impressions they have multiplied them into many thousands. If any man was to go among them that had some extraordinary talent, 
or that by much traveling had observed the customs of many nations, which made us to be so well received, he would receive a hearty welcome, for they are very desirous to know the state of the whole world. Very few go among them on the account of traffic, for what can a man carry to them but iron or gold or silver, which merchants desire rather to export than import to a strange country? And as for their exportation, they think it is better to manage that themselves than to leave it to foreigners, for by this means, as they understand the state of the neighboring countries better, so they keep up the art of navigation, which cannot be maintained but by much practice. Okay, so most of that chapter was not about traveling. (laughs) The beginning is a little bit about traveling, and basically we learn that while people can travel around Utopia, it's highly restricted. You have to get a passport from the prince, and it says how long you can be traveling. If you're found wandering outside of your own province without a proper passport, you're punished severely, and if you do it again, you become a slave. I would not think that that's how it would be in an enlightened society that values knowledge as much as the utopians do. And this love of knowledge is more or less what the entire rest of that very lengthy chapter was all about. More via Hithliday talks at length about the nature of pleasure and essentially sums it all up in that the highest form of pleasure comes from knowledge. He also specifies that only good and honest pleasures are allowed in utopia, and he seems to have a rather narrow definition of what it means to be virtuous. I believe this fits well with what we know of his religious views. Be virtuous and simple in this life and get your rewards in the next life. However, people in utopia seem to enjoy the simple pleasures of life. And they understand the true value of things, such as their health. There's also a long segment devoted to discussing how ridiculous it is that people value things like gold and silver and gems the way that we do, as these things hold no intrinsic value. In fact, they're worthless. I mean, gold is inherently useless, and that's a point well taken. The utopians understand this, so they have no use for these things. However, they do use gold, silver, and gems for their chamber pots to adorn their slaves and as toys for children. This state of affairs leads to one of the only funny moments in this entire section in which the ambassadors for another country come to Utopia adorned in all of their finest silks and jewels and gold chains, and the Utopians just laugh at them. They look ridiculous. In fact, mothers tell their children that these must be the king's fools. (laughs) That was actually pretty funny. But there's also a contradiction here. If the utopians really don't care about gold, then why do they purposefully debase these things by turning them into toilets and adornments for their slaves? If they really just weren't predisposed to a love of gold and fine things like everyone else in the world, then why do they have to go to such great lengths to make sure that their people don't start to think too highly of them? Actually, there are quite a number of contradictions like this throughout this entire book, 
which we can either attribute just to Thomas More's writing, or there is the possibility that Raphael Hithloday may be an unreliable narrator, especially given that many people think this entire book might actually be the equivalent of a literary hoax. Something else in this chapter that didn't entirely make sense was that they make their slaves do all the butchering and cleaning of the meat, and it's considered just too filthy and disgusting for any of their own people to take part in. If there's really that much of an aversion to both hunting and butchering, then why isn't this a vegetarian colony? And then, of course, there's the elephant in the room, a utopian society that relies on the labor of slaves. There is a chapter coming up later that talks more about slaves, so let's table that for now. My overall sense from this chapter is that Utopia is in fact a very restrictive society. The people are certainly better provided for than many of those in 16th century Europe and certainly medieval Europe, but are they freer? On the next episode, of their slaves and of their marriages, which he's grouped together as one topic. Okay. (laughs) But you'll have to tune in next time to find out about the severe punishment for forbidden embraces and why a prospective bride and groom are allowed to inspect each other naked before their marriage. Hint, it's the same rationale you use for buying a horse. That's all coming up next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.